Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. The name for this show comes from what you could call the ultimate long run in capitalism. There are the long product development cycles, the huge expense involved in creating new drugs, and the extreme risk and uncertainty. There are no shortcuts in biotech, no overnight success stories. Still, the men and women who strive to apply science for the betterment of human health have a historic opportunity. We're reaping the dividends from decades of basic biomedical research. Some amazing new treatments have come forward the past few years. Many more are in the works. But new treatments with promise still often get blindsided by dangerous side effects. Bringing these drugs all the way to the market, ensuring the benefits outweigh the safety risks, and then making the drugs widely available are all huge challenges. We can't agree on what fair pricing looks like. Biotech's relationship with the society that sustains it has never been more tenuous. This is a long and perilous journey. This show will seek to shine light on the biomedical enterprise through one-on-one conversations with leaders in the field of biotech. I'm super excited to get started. The first episode is a conversation with John Mariganori. He's the CEO of Cambridge, Massachusetts-based Nylum Pharmaceuticals, a leading developer of drugs designed to work through RNA interference, or gene silencing. Mariganori has been with the company since 2002. The company has raised more than $2 billion in that time and has a portfolio of drug candidates at various stages of development that make it worth about $7 billion as of this recording. In its early days, Elnylam rode a wave of hype, much like CRISPR gene editing enjoys today. Over the years, Elnylam has engaged in sharp-elbowed legal battles over intellectual property. It endured a long stretch when the markets lost confidence in RNAi. About a year ago, a late-stage drug candidate was sunk after patients on the drug died for reasons that are still hard to fully fathom. Same thing happened just last week with a different Elnylam drug. When a patient in a hemophilia study died from a blood clot, Elnylam was forced to put that study on hold, and it lost about a billion dollars in market value in a Wall Street nanosecond. Still, that's not the end of the story. Elnylam is within days of getting the last set of Phase 3 clinical trial results. It believes it needs to file its first new drug application with the FDA, hopefully by the end of this year. If the FDA allows this drug on the market, Elnylam will have to morph into a different kind of business. One that is evaluated not just on science and clinical trial data, but one that also must perform in terms of dollars and cents. This conversation was recorded in early August, and we discussed some of Elnylam's history and current hot industry issues like drug pricing. Apologies if it feels a little dated without any mention of the recent death in the hemophilia study. But I think that the issues discussed here are still very much timely and in the news, and Mariganori is well positioned to comment on them as the newly elected chairman of the Biotechnology Innovation Organization. Before we get started, a couple of quick plugs. If you like this show, you'll love my subscription newsletter, Timmerman Report. You can go to TimmermanReport.com to subscribe. Also, when you go there, please share the link to the Long Run Podcast on your social networks. Once I have the show listed on iTunes and Stitcher, please tell your friends to get the feed there. The next episode will feature a conversation with Katrine Bosley, the CEO of Etitas Medicine, a CRISPR genome editing company. You won't want to miss that. That'll come shortly. I hope you enjoy this initial episode for now, and let me know what you think. I'm just getting warmed up. Now, 
Join me for the long run. Welcome, John Mariganori. You're the CEO of Alnylam Pharmaceuticals. You've been there, I believe, since 2002. So this is now 15 years on the it. job. Pretty amazing. Yeah, it's a, it's it's that's what it takes. <laughs> this is a this is a long haul business. It's a marathon, no doubt. Well, and this is why I thought you would be such a, a great guest to have on a show like this uh, titled "The Long Run," which is really about this journey that it takes, the, the ups and downs, the trials and tribulations to develop a new drug. And I think your experience at Alnylam really epitomizes a lot of what this business is about or attempting to be about. So I think just for listeners who may not be all that familiar with you and the Alnylam story, maybe we can just walk through some of the the history of, of what this company is about. So what was uh, what was going on there in 2002 that drew you to this in the first uh-huh. place? Well, I mean, look, Almilum got started around a big, bold vision of taking the the Nobel Prize winning discovery of RNA interference and harnessing that 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 you know natural biological mechanism to create a whole new category of drugs by essentially um, silencing um, disease-causing uh, genes, more specifically by by um, targeting the messenger RNA that co- encodes. The disease-causing proteins that that exist in, you know, virtually all you know maladies, and so that big bold vision back in 2002, you know, venture-backed company, we had intellectual property that we brought in from academic institutions, sort of classic, you know, biotech story, if you will, uh, venture money, you know, the IP consolidation, and then off we went to sort of figure out how to take the science. And actually make something good out of it at the end of the day, and it was it was raw science. I mean, this was we're, we're talking about nature papers and stuff done in in cell culture and in C. elegans and you know hardly uh, no zero in vivo data at the time when we got started with with this approach, and we then had to figure out painstakingly how to fig how to conquer the technical hurdles that existed with RNAi, the big one being delivery of these molecules to ultimately make them viable as, as uh, clinical uh, medicines and clinical studies and ultimately for the market. And so we're now in the late stages of our, of our clinical journey uh, with our uh, most advanced program uh, just about to report phase three data literally in the next you know, six to eight weeks. So pretty exciting time for the company. Lots of people knocking wood and crossing fingers and stuff like that. But we are really coming to this part of our journey where uh, if all goes well, uh, we should be a commercial stage company uh, in 2018. Well, now that's a really interesting transition, and I want to talk about that later here in the show. But um, just to back up a bit, these were really heady days when you got started in the early 2000s. RNA interference, this was going to be that next big modality. We had small molecules, which were good at certain things, but couldn't access every target in biology. And large molecules, proteins, antibodies could do some very good specific things, but again, couldn't reach all the targets, largely confined to yep. uh, outs- the, the surface of cells, not inside. Yep. And, and RNAi yep. pro- provided this idea of incredible specificity to a, a disease-related protein at the 
the transcription uh, before it's uh, uh, really manifesting in a, in a horrible, diseased way. So specificity and then access to a whole range of targets. I mean, people really thought that this was a great story. This is going to be the, yep. the third big leg of the stool in pharmaceuticals. It had the same um, rational exuberance, I think is the right way to, to, to frame it, uh, that you see today with uh, gene editing and CRISPR-Cas9, for example. And um, It was so back CRISPR in those back days, then. <laughs> it was CRISPR back then, or CRISPR is RNAi, you know, uh, ten, 10 years forth. Um, and you know, it, it, it really is that same type of excitement, enthusiasm about work and go, what it can do, how it can transform medicine and so forth. And we lived those days in 2002, I think in 2002, um, or beginning of 2003, when I just joined the company, um, science magazine made it the breakthrough of the year, for example, you know, and it, it was really that type of, uh, moment of time for the science. Um, but you know, we always knew from the beginning that it would take, it would take time to figure out how to make these into drugs. And it did, it did. Um, and it took a lot of money as well. You know, we've, we've invested $2.1 billion since inception behind this uh, overall quest. And uh, we've raised uh, $3.3 billion to date since inception from, you know, the equity markets venture, from partners and, 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 and R&D funding from even government sources. And so it, it, is, it is a remarkable story but it is um, exactly what we expected to have happen. Um, you know, I remember talking to our board at the way beginning and saying, look, you know, this is going to be a 10-year journey at least. It's going to talk, take billions of dollars uh, to, to make this happen. And uh, here we are, you know, billions of dollars later, you know, 15 years later. Uh, it's, exactly, it's exactly what it takes. Well, maybe you thought it would take that long and take that much money. But uh, the outside world tends not to think in such long terms. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> that's for sure. And and you know, a lot of people, a lot of people on the investment community side, for example, say, "God, it's taken so long. What's what's happened?" And this is why you know you have these classic you know um, you know curves of, of 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 new technologies where there's a period of time, and we lived it too, of of massive despair and 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 you know consternation and belief that um, that you know it will never get there. Um, and you know, I mean, Andy Pollack is one of my favorite reporters, um, now retired, as you know, Luke, and he wrote a, he wrote an article in 2010 around, you know, the excitement of RNAi has fizzled. Um, and I actually, I keep that article in front of my desk so I can constantly be reminded that what you do today is what you do today. But people ultimately, you know, don't have a lot of patience around what we do. But the reality is it takes a lot of time to do it. Well, and it tracks the classic Gartner hype cycle, right? Yeah. There's this exciting thing happens, a technology trigger, like the discovery of RNA interference. And then people's imaginations start running wild. They, they think, boy, yeah. this can be applied in any number of ways, and it's going to fill all these white spaces. And then eventually people realize, gosh, this is harder than it looks, and it's going to take longer. Yeah. In the case of RNAi, it was about delivery into the cells. This was a very hard chemistry problem to protect the, the siRNA molecules so that they could get into the cells, right? Yeah. And it happened to coincide. It's, it's funny you mentioned that 2010 article because that was just as we were coming out of the financial crisis. So you, Absolutely. You, kind of, you kind of had a double whammy there where people were losing faith in RNAi as a field, Right at the same time, we're, we're still very much in the throes of a global financial crisis or just coming out of it. 
it was during that very dark period, as we all remember, that, I mean, I think everybody felt, boy, maybe biotech will never be successful as a whole class. I mean, how will we raise money in the future? So it was a dark period. You know, fortunately, we were, I think, mostly lucky, maybe, maybe a little bit of smart, but mostly lucky in raising capital, you know, robustly in that period of, of exuberance and effectively bringing in a lot of money. So, you know, even in the darkest days around Lehman Brothers collapse and, and you know, pharma exiting the RNAI field, we had hundreds of millions of dollars of capital on our balance sheet. And uh, that really was fortunate. You can weather uh, the storm. Fortunate. Yeah, we had the cash to weather the storm. And as a board, you know, we never lost conviction. You know, it's really interesting. I mean, during those dark times, I got to tell you, Luke, it, it, you know, we, we had data in-house that made us incredibly encouraged uh, and, 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 and willing to persevere the storm. You know, our board, there, there was never an occasion as a board where we said, hey, you know, maybe we ought to start going to plan B instead of plan A here and look at some different technology or look at some different opportunity to build a company. We, we never wavered uh, on, on this overall uh, quest, in part because the science that we were saying was, was, was very encouraging and very promising. But it wasn't until late 2011 that we were able to convince the outside world that we could actually do that. And, uh, and I'll never forget the, the first patient that we saw uh, in one of our clinical studies where there was a clear you know, RNAi effect in that patient, uh, patient 5003 from, our, from, our, from one of our TTR phase uh, one studies. And that response was unequivocal. It was clearly an RNAi response. It was black and white. And that was the beginning of the outside world saying, oh my gosh, I think these guys might actually be able to do it. And that was, that was just an awesome period for the company. But during that period, you were very clearly focused on, on getting more rigorous data. I mean, that was what yeah. cl clinical trial data, not just, you know, a, a couple of anecdotes here and there, needed to, uh, to convince the skeptics. Yes. And, 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 you know, we managed to do that, right? So, so in that period between 2011 and, and 2015, for the most part, although I, probably most acutely between 2011 and 2014, it was really all around getting human uh, efficacy data and safety data to convince the outside world and, and pharma partners that we could actually do this. We could actually make it happen. And that sort of peaked in, in the beginning of 2014 with the large deal that we did with Sanofi Genzyme around our rare disease pipeline, uh, which really was, um, you know, that was our, our um, you know, fun JP Morgan meeting where we announced those data. We also acquired Cerna from Merck, uh, which was, you know, back in 20, 2002, 3, 4, it was our competitor. Merck bought them in 2005 for $1.1 billion, and we bought it from Merck uh, for $175 million in the beginning of 2014. So we consolidated that part of the story, too. But, but that was really sort of the peak period where we had definitively convinced the, the outside world, you know, our investors, you know, the clinicians and so forth, that we can do it. And then what happened and what's happened is that people are now waiting for phase three data. It's not enough anymore to knock down a disease gene in a, in a human. I mean, that's great, but they don't care so much about that. What they care about is what's your phase three data going to look at. So we're, we're in a different period, if you will, now from where we were at 20, in 2014 
where it was really around early clinical data. Now it's really late stage clinical data. And then, and then soon enough, uh, it'll be it'll be revenues, right? It'll be what what is our revenue uh, ramp in 2018, 19, 20 that's going to convince people that these can be commercial successes. Well, you're so it's amazing be, how that journey goes. You're going to be evaluated on a whole different set of criteria uh, once you, oh, you bet. graduate to become a, a true commercial enterprise. Um, you bet. You're, you're now an R and D. You're still an R and D only enterprise about to make that transition. Really, a, a company yep. at that that important crossroads, uh, I, I think of it, uh, and not many companies are able to make that transition um, yeah. because the the thing that made them great um, in R and D is very different from what makes a company successful in the commercial realm. I mean, it's it's different yeah. kind of people, no. different kind of metrics. I mean, different cultures. Um, and, and it's, uh, it's a challenge to hold this together. How, and, and you're going through this now. Can you talk a little bit about how, how you think about, um, holding on to, um, the, the spirit of El Nylum while, um, while becoming successful in a different kind of way? Well, I think part of it, and so we are living this exactly to your point as we speak, right? And so part of this is that we have maintained and will maintain scientific excellence in our RNA as a company, right? We don't, we, we, we're an RNA company, so we have to put it all in our RNA, not our DNA. Um, and so, you know, that, that has to be preserved and, and, and that very much has been preserved as we've been making this transition now over the last 12, 18 months with, you know, new people from the commercial side coming in, uh, into the company. They, they get that. They, they bought into that as a, as a fundamental uh, tenant. The other part of this, which, which of course, you know, being a company focused on the rare diseases is, 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 is critical, is that the patient is front and center of everything we do. And so, you know, we, we, we cared as much about patients in the early days at El Milam where we can imagine our therapies making a difference in their lives. Now we're closer to the patient than ever before. And the people that we brought in on the commercial side are focused on really what's the, you know, what's, 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 you know, what's the impact we can make in the patient's life. Um, and that and that has been a critical element. But there are, you know, as we go grow and scale, there are processes that have to be put in place. There are, um, you know, we're doing, you know, GMP manufacturing. We're doing, obviously, as we think about our sales organization, we have to think about compliance and training and education. So these are all elements that have to be integrated within the company and are being integrated within the company that are different than they, you know, the book around what what got you here won't, you know, or what is it, whatever it is, what didn't get you, what, what got you here won't get you um, going forward. Um, you know, that's very true. And and part of that is to bring in the right people to help you do it. Now, we we should say that, um, I mean, you're getting ready for uh, your, your first product, Knockwood, hopefully, will be this patisseran, uh for yeah. TTR amyloidosis. Um, and you have a data readout, as you alluded to, uh, later in September that you expect. And then uh, we do. all goes well. Um, you should be able to file an NDA to the FDA by the end of this year and um, hopefully be on the, on the market uh, in 2018. Um, and then you've got other products in your pipeline, too, uh, with different kinds of profiles. I know one is a, a subcutaneous uh, injection form of, of this very drug. Um, TTR, yep. um, but mm-hmm. there's there, there's others for genetic rare diseases. You even have a, an RNAi version of a PCSK9 inhibitor, uh, which which I think poses an interesting kind of profile. So, um, how do you think about um, pricing these kind of drugs? This is the the big issue in 
yeah. facing the industry and 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 something that every executive needs to think about uh, even before you get to um, the cusp of the market as you are. Yeah. Well, well, let's get to that in in, in just a second. But let me build on a, an, an earlier point that you 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 raised, which is, I mean, what's exciting about El Nalum right now is that you know, and and if all goes well, and I'm sure there'll be ups and downs, right? Because there's no such thing as a straight line. But we're we really are positioned with Petit Saran to launch our first product in 2018, and then with Gavosaran, which is our drug in Porphyria, and Fetusaran, which is our drug in Hemophilia, uh, we're positioned to have additional. Uh, commercial product launches in 2019 and 2020 with those two products. And then Medicines Company is developing Inclisaran, which is that PCSK9 product, and that is likely to be a product uh, where they're guiding for the readout to happen in 2019 and be able to be commercial in 2020. And so, you know, it's rare in biotech to have a company um, like Alnylam where we're going to have not just one uh, uh, product get into the market, but potentially many over a relatively short period of time. And so that that creates a profile, which is very, very important. Now, on the pricing side, and your point about pricing, this is front and center, you know, uh, of my mind, you know, almost every day of the week. Um, it is it is obviously front and center of, of the whole industry. But as we think about our orphan uh, medicines in our pipeline, we obviously have to reflect on uh, on, on these medicines providing significant value for patients. And the pricing uh, for these medicines is going to be consistent with the value delivered. You know, we're building value dossiers uh, for uh, all of these uh, medicines to understand uh, the, the real economic value that they can generate to the to society um, and, and to overall healthcare costs. Um, and that has to be very robust. It has to be very well put together. We were meeting with payers on these programs to basically understand how they think about uh, a product like the ones that we're developing and how they think about, um, um, you know, reimbursement uh, for those type of products. And so we're doing a lot on the pricing side to really understand that landscape very specifically for our products. Now, these are orphan drugs and they're going to be priced likely with six digits, uh, which is very much consistent with uh, orphan drug uh, uh, development and, and pricing. Um, but it ha- has to be supported by the real economic value that they deliver. If, if a, even if it's an orphan drug, if it's just, just um, making people feel a little bit better every day and not having a big impact, you're not going to be able to get significant premium pricing on a product like that. But long and short of it is we're spending a lot of time on the issue, Luke. You take um, a person with a rare disease um, who has no options and um, uh, basically give them their life back. And enable them to go back to work and be a productive yeah. um, citizen, productive worker. Um, that's worth a lot. I, I think most people it's, would agree that that is. It's 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 huge. I mean, you know, I'll give you a good example. We have a patient in our in our hemophilia program that has hemophilia B with inhibitors, which is really probably at the pinnacle of the unmet need in the in the hemophilia space. The, these patients have no prophylaxis. They they have enormous burden. This patient was was self-administering Novo Seven, which is uh, recombinant factor seven A, to basically control his bleeding um, two to three times a day. Uh, Novo Seven has notoriously a very short half-life, um, and have had to give two to three IV infusions every day uh, to basically just be able to not die. And he's been in the Futusaran study getting a once-monthly sub-Q injection. His life is transformed. 
Um, his, his, he doesn't use Nova seven anymore. His bleeding is, is well under control. And, um, you know, he felt good enough to get engaged. So it's one of these wonderful things, uh, that, that we get to see in the rare disease space, um, where these medicines can be truly transformative for patients. And we've seen the same type of results in, in our Patisseran, uh, phase two open label study and in our Gavosaran study in Porphyria, we've seen amazing results. And so this transformation is something which can really be realized uh, with, with these type of medicines. But when you, you mentioned value, and that has been um, the buzzword. Uh, what is the value yep. of these things? How do we calculate it? How do we, uh, you know, I, I guess uh, square it out after, over time? Um, what, um, h- how do you think about that definition? Well, I mean, let's take let's take let's take um, let's take Patisseran and 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 talk about that drug. This is a drug for uh, a disease, hereditary ATTR uh, amyloidosis, which is a progressive disease. It's uniformly debilitating. Basically, patients over time, um, you know, uh, lose their ability to walk. They lose their ability to to put their shirt on, to hold their fork. Um, you know, because they have a they have a peripheral neuropathy that. That you know, makes them unable to do that. They ultimately um, require a cane, then they require a wheelchair, and then they ultimately waste away. They have an autonomic uh, neuropathy as well, and so they can't digest food. They they have trouble innervating, um, you know, uh, parts of their body that are that, that are needed. And they can die from infection within typically a decade. So this is and the only thing, sadly, the only thing about these patients that doesn't go bad. Is their is their mind so they get the they they have the the horrible um, uh, experience of actually seeing their body decay in front of their very very eyes not unlike ALS uh, in many ways so what's the value of having a drug that stops the disease progression what's the value of having a disease uh, a drug that that in some cases might even reverse the underlying uh, uh, disease um, you know you can calculate that value you can calculate you know the, the the cost of the healthcare system for dealing with the burden of that patient when they get to later stages of their disease, and how do you how do you economically avert that cost with with a new medicine, right? So that's that there is a very sound way to quantify the value of a medicine like that in a way that that then has to support then 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 has to be looked at by payers, and they have to say, wow, the the value of the drug, the price of the drug. Um, that we have to pay for annually is worth it, given the the, um, the the cost savings that can be generated in the system. Not even to speak of the of the of the benefit to the patient beyond just the costs. But and that and that type of value is measurable. Yes, but here's the thing: the the cost that the payer is being asked to pay is tangible and upfront and large, and the downstream savings are a projection. Um, it, it, however you slice it and time has to go on. Uh, that patient has to live 10, 20 years and, and uh, prove out that, that we're getting the savings that we thought we were going to get based on an extrapolation from, uh, the clinical trial experience of say maybe six or 12 or 18 months. Um, is this, is this part of the, just the fundamental rub? Well, it is part of the fundamental rub, and 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 there's really no um, there's no ways around that. Um, you know, we 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 have to, as a society, we have to say, do we just want to let people die and and you know die a miserable death? I, I think I think our society would say um, no. We, we we don't we can't let that happen. 
So, so how do we think about, how do we think about, um, um, you know, the value that's being delivered with the new medicine in relationship to the overall costs that are being averted? And how do we think about that at a population level? Because obviously, you know, you, you know, you, you have a given payer that has a given patient in their system has to sort of look at the entirety of the data to understand the economic value. They can't just do it at the individual level. Now, having said that, you know, we are um, believers and, and, will, and will be proactive about this, that having risk-sharing agreements is a good thing to do. Um, and so we've, we've constructed many different ways in which, which our, our drugs uh, would be offered and available to payers on a risk, under a risk-sharing agreement where the drug is being reimbursed, provided it provides benefit to the patients. And, and we have to define with payers what that benefit is or what, what the surrogate for that benefit would be, um, but we can do it. And I think that, that type of an approach, um, which is being used elsewhere as well in the industry, is a, is a prudent approach for pricing medicines, especially medicines that are, that are expensive. And if it doesn't provide the benefit that you expect after a couple of years, then what? You, we don't get you paid. pay them, you pay them, uh, you give them a money back guarantee. Well, that's that, that sort of the money back approach is, is more complicated, right? There's a lot of accounting challenges with that, uh, that would, that would make, make our lives and, and, and many people's lives very difficult, but there are ways of, of coming up with constructs. And, and I think the industry is being very creative about this, um, with payers where you reach an agreement, you can form it in, in a contract in, in, in many ways around what is going to be measured at what time point to indicate that the drug is acting effectively. Um, and, uh, you know, at least in the schemes that we've come up with, um, it may be that the drug is offered for free until there's proof that the drug is working, after which time the drug would be reimbursed. Um, and so there, there are schemes, many different schemes that one can imagine. Obviously, if the patient is no longer feeling better from the drug and individually and is no longer um, is progressing in their disease, they're, they're going to come off the drug anyway, right? There's, there's, you know, the physicians and the patient um, will, will decide, hey, I'm not benefiting from this, and they will naturally come off. Um, but you want to pre- create a better framework for, uh, for reimbursement that could be more objective and, 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 and more driven based on population data as opposed to individual data, which is always very complicated. So these are approaches, Luke, that we're, we're very actively discussing um, both internally and with payers, and uh, believe that this is a type of approach that would be important for uh, the medicines that we uh, want to create. I'll say one thing, too, which is, you know, we have a wonderful opportunity at Elnylum because we are um, just now becoming a commercial stage company. And so we can be the type of commercial stage company we want to be, uh, as opposed to having to deal with legacy burdens and, uh, you know, past history and stuff like that. And our goal and our vision is to be as creative as a commercial stage company as we've been as an R&D company. We want to be viewed by, by you know, our, our market and by payers and, and, and physicians and others to be a partner and a solution-oriented business, just as we've been a partner to patients and scientists as an R&D company. And that's a real opportunity for Elnylum that, that I'm personally very passionate about. Um, and, you know, you'll hear a lot more about that going forward from our company. Do you structure any special incentives in your commercial enterprise um, to try to um, ensure that? And, and uh, you know, when, when I ask this, I think of, you know, classic sales reps working on commission. You know, the more they can boost prescription volume, the more they get paid. And that ne- isn't necessarily uh, always well aligned with our society's 
desire to get a good bang for the buck or, or to get the best outcome for the patient. Yeah. Well, I, we haven't gotten to that yet, and it's a very important question and one that I think makes a lot of sense. We have talked a lot about what what do we want to do from a from a external disclosure perspective when we talk about our products, our product launches commercially, and do we want to focus on revenues and earnings, or do we want to focus on patient numbers and and patient impact? Are there other? Is there a way to create a sort of a triple P and L that that has you know if you will earnings, but also patient numbers and some measure of patient impact as well? And and you you basically create a different way to look at your performance as a company than just the numbers. And so we've talked a lot about that, but but the specifics around a compensation program for for our, our ultimate sales force, our account managers, is, is a detail that we haven't gotten to yet. But I think it's one that will have to marry up with, with a more progressive way to think about um, commercializing medicines, uh, and it's something that we're quite interested in. So, But we haven't gotten to solutions there yet. That would be a fascinating development, because I don't really... Uh, I mean, I can think of science-based companies that uh, behave in a responsible way, but, you know, the pharmaceutical industry has gotten um, a bad rap in, in recent years, and it a has. lot of people really see it as, uh, you know, price gouging. There's all kinds of examples in the news um, that it's really about, you know, maximizing that share price and boosting the, the income statements and the balance sheets. Um and and that's really not consistent with um, I think that the mission that you know gets a lot of people to work each day in this business. There's a real tension there between the reason the companies like El Nylum exist, that is to solve serious medical problems, um, and you know the the capitalist imperative to make a profit while you do that. Um, yeah. That's that's legit and that's real. And we need it, to find a is. way to bring those things into into balance so that they can yeah. so that one doesn't, you know, subsume the other. Yeah. And, and, and look, look, I mean, it, 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 you know, you're absolutely right. You know, there but there are there are um, important ways to think about this differently. And, and, and I, I think that we can do it differently. Um, I assure you the people that come to El Milam every day, our scientists, our clinicians, our even our new commercial colleagues that come into the company every day, you know, we're focusing today on patient impact and making a difference in people's lives. And you, if you preserve that going forward, and some companies have done that well in the past. I mean, I think Genzyme um, did that very well, and Henry's leadership at Genzyme ensured it that the patient was always put front and center. That is something which we believe in wholeheartedly, and we have to preserve that even when we're commercial and we're also committed to bring uh, a reward to our to our uh, shareholders, but it, it goes down to the George Merck quote around, you know, really focusing on the patient and the profits will follow thereafter. And I do believe in that wholeheartedly. This is a, a time in which we're, we're talking about the social contract, really. I mean, Brent, Brent Saunders has come out with that phrase. You've used that phrase. Um, yeah. how, how do you think about that bargain, that fundamental bargain that we have between society and the pharmaceutical industry? I mean, I am passionate on this topic, as you know, Luke. I mean, I think that it's the wonderful thing we 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 have created here in 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 you know R and D discovery and then commercialization of of breakthroughs and innovation. And I believe that we have a system 
that 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 works that's been working um, you know hatch waxman specifically ensures that the drugs that we create today are ultimately free for our kids and for our kids kids and that is because um, you know we have a limited period of time to reap the reward for our innovation 10 12 years is typically the the period and thereafter our drugs become generic um, and, you know, others can come in and they can copy our drugs and they can get approval for those copycat versions and they can go off and sell them at discounts to what we sell them at. Uh, and our prices will decrease as, as a result as well because we'll have to. And that's the wonderful um, feature of, of, you know, our social contract that we've got. And it's one that I think, um, you know, needs to be kept center in the entirety of our discussion around drug pricing. And I think the types of things that Scott Gottlieb is doing at FDA right now with accelerating generic drug approvals, I wholeheartedly, uh, wholeheartedly believe in. I, I had a dinner with, with Henry Tremier just a couple months before he died, and, um, and he, he's such a wonderful man. We, we were talking about this drug pricing topic and, and, and how should we deal with it. And Henry said to me in his, in his Dutch accent, he said, he said, John, he said, all we have to do is to preserve the incentives for our innovation. He said everything else, you know, everything else that's incremental, everything else that, that you know, when, when drugs go generic is open for discussion. It's open for negotiation. We should be willing to find compromises and willing to find ways to basically accept that, you know, once our drug period of once our, once our period of, of exclusivity goes away, that we, we, we of course should be obsolesced. And, and that obsolescence turns out to be an amazingly positive thing for innovation because, you know, I mean, you know, companies can get really innovative when they've got a major patent clip coming up. They've got to figure out a way to to fill that gap, right? Necessity and that's is a, the that, mother of invention. You bet, you bet. And so I think I think this social contract that we have is such a critical element of of why the system, in so many ways, can work well. And I think what what we have to do is we have to get rid of the the people that have cheated the system, that are cheating the system, or trying to cheat the system, because that is wrong. They're finding loopholes in the system. And I think we have to go back to developing, discovering, developing amazingly innovative breakthroughs. And for the innovators that do that, to get a period of wonderful reward, fair, fair, I mean, there's, there are limits, right? But they get a period of reward, and then ultimately they get obsolesced, and those drugs become free for society, for infinity, for infinity, Right. So yeah. that's that's the social contract that we all have to embrace, and and it, it is a system that can work. It creates the right incentives for the innovators to do what they do, and it creates the right return for society by virtue of the fact that these medicines essentially become free within ten, twelve years. Yeah, and you know, from from society's end, uh, we we put a lot into this bargain too. I mean, there's the yeah. investment in yeah. basic research and, you know, an educated workforce uh, that our tax dollars help support. There's the patent system. Um, there's a, a generous reimbursement system through Medicare and yep. our private yep. insurance system. We're, we're willing to pay, uh, I mean, a lot yep. of money for genuine innovations. Things like, you know, in the RNA space, I mean, Spinraza is a good example, just a new, new drug out. Um, it's, it's at a very high price, but gosh, you know, yep. Kids that are, are uh, given a death sentence in, in a couple of years who, um, you know, are, are, are now given a new lease on life. I mean, that's a very exciting thing. And Absolutely. Um, so, like, we're, 
and, and but the biology is just now making this possible. Um, there's so many more examples like that in the pipeline um, that uh, it really does uh, demand a, a rethinking of uh, how we're going to uh, properly reward this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, because and I think I, and I, yeah, and I think I think we think it does, and I think I think we also I think we also have to um, you know um, celebrate that there will be remarkable cures in some cases you know one and done type cures that'll emerge from our industry, and we obviously want to make sure that we have them available and uh, that we're willing to pay for them, and I think that I think that there will be look I think that at the end of the day um, if we can keep the cycle. Um, strong. If we can have, you know, the cycle of generic drugs that that get approved robustly, quickly, um, soon after a drug um, comes off patent or loses ex- exclusivity on, on their data, then we're going to have a system that ultimately obsolesces um, a good chunk of the healthcare spending on on meds, and that'll keep everything in equilibrium. You know, here's something that a lot of people don't understand, and that is why we don't see more. Uh, competition on price within the branded pharmaceutical industry, in um, e- even in patented areas, crowded categories. Well, we, now I'll, I'll give we an do. Well, where? Hep C. Look at Hep C. The the you know it's a fantastic example, right? I mean, after all the outcry on Harvoni and Savaldi and the price and eighty four thousand dollars. Right now, it's on average it's a twenty one thousand dollar price, twenty twenty five thousand dollar price. To get cured of HCV for life. So basically, let's put it this way, Luke: one year of college tuition is what you have to pay for to get lifelong cure for HCV infection and all the associated burden that comes with that. And that's a branded space, and it's all come out of multiple companies competing in that space. Now it's that's fantastic. one. That, that's one example, and it's a great example. Um, it also points to the the weakness in the system with the. Uh, the, the difference between cost effectiveness on an individual basis and on a population yep. basis. So it, does. It, it started at $84,000 from Gilead Savaldi. And uh, you could say that, yes, we will save on a per patient basis uh, more than that over the patient's lifetime in, in its hospital costs. But it, it was a $10 billion pill for our society to swallow that first yeah. year, which was yep. uh, you know, hard, hard to take. Uh, budgets were not yep. ready for that. And so, and our system just isn't uh, set up to handle more Savaldi type things coming down the pike, and and we know some of them are coming. Yeah, yeah. But one of the things that can help a lot is for um, companies having <clears throat> discussions with payers earlier, with with an ability to have those discussions in a in a compliant manner. Um, so, for example, I think the the recent uh, Dipixumab approval by uh, by the FDA the launch and and the and the reception that the the drug got from a pricing perspective is is an, is an extremely good example where Regeneron and Sanofi spent time with the payers they educated them the, the PBMs and when the drug came to market they actually celebrated the price they 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 applauded the price Icer uh, also felt that the price was was appropriate so this is where we need to go, and part of it is to really also have reform around truthful, non-misleading communications between companies and, and payers so that these type of communications can happen, and nobody's caught off guard. You know, part of the issue with Savaldi uh, and that $10 billion one-year nut was that you know, payers were just caught completely off guard, and that should not have happened. 
Um, no, and hopefully in the future that won't happen. But the, the HCV example is one that people point to. But there are others where there's uh, there are crowded categories and and not uh, and yet ever ratcheting upward prices like multiple sclerosis, like rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, and this is something that people don't get. Uh, I mean, yeah. in, in, in the tech world, for example, you know, someone comes out with a com- competitive version to the iPhone. It's 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 cheaper uh, oftentimes. That's one way uh, people compete. And, um, I, I, you know, I, I think you, you could actually be in a situation like this indirectly in a way with your PCSK9 inhibitor. You know, I can imagine with a, a, a less frequently injected version of a PCSK9 inhibitor, uh, you, you could have lower cost of goods uh, than the antibody drugs that are on the market, uh, and and uh, it would give you some pricing flexibility. You could undercut those people on price if you wanted to, and probably mm-hmm. sew up most of the market. Uh, but yep. that's not typically the way these things tend to go. Companies tend to say, no. "Well, you know, we've got a better product profile. It's less frequently injected. Ours should be 10% more, or or whatever than whatever's on the yep. market now." Yeah. You know, I think that's. I think this is an issue. Um, you know, I think that you you want to have. You, you, I, I'm a big believer that the, the the right way to solve the overall drug pricing issue is by having competition, even in branded markets. And and I think that um, you know we need to be thoughtful about what we've seen in markets like multiple sclerosis and and maybe in the RA market as well, where you haven't seen or even diabetes with insulin, you haven't seen uh, the net benefit of that of that. Um, I think the biggest, one of the biggest challenges we have as an industry uh, is is drug price increases, and I and I, it's it's it, I agree with Len Schleifer's comment he made in the panel that it's it's the one thing that happens that makes me mad at the industry as well, and I feel 100% the same way. Um, you know, companies have used that because they don't have productivity. They've needed to use that as a way of growing earnings to to reward their shareholders, um, and it's because they can't deliver on new drugs and. And new innovation, and I it's think like we a crutch. can do it differently. It is a crutch. It's it's well, it's like it's like a it's a, it's a, it's a version of the opioid crisis for for you know pharmaceutical executives actually, um, and so it's a terrible terrible thing. But it's one that's becoming um, and it's very difficult to justify. But it is one that we're beginning to see in a market based way. Companies come out and say, you know, we're not going to do that anymore. So Sanofi uh, earlier this year. Um, said that they were they they will not increase drug prices beyond the rate of medical inflation. Um, we saw Brent's manifesto that that he came out with at Allergan. I thought a wonderful first move um, from 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 his standpoint. People have criticized you know that you know nine point nine is still a big number. I actually agree with that, but the fact is that he he went out there with it, and I think it was a well well thought through uh, approach. Nova Nordisk has also committed to not have price increases. And so we're beginning to see companies um, basically from a responsible and, 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 and you know, moral perspective begin to self-police themselves, which I think is great. Um, and it's something which, you know, you'll see from El Nilem, you know, we'll, we, will not, we will not partake in that practice. We just don't believe in it. Uh, um, we, we have productivity that allows us to build and grow our company without using it as a, as a means. And it's, it's very, very hard to justify well, and those patent cliffs will force you to uh, stay on your toes and, and keep innovating, you not bet. lean on have crutches. To. <laughs> have to. Have to. Exactly. Have to. And, and you know, those crutches go away really quickly. I mean, you know, obviously when the patent, uh, then the branded product ultimately expires, no matter how many price increases you've taken, um, you know, those prices are going to plummet dramatically. 
Now, we didn't even mention this, but uh, you've recently been uh, elected the chairman of BIO. Uh, is this one of those things where, um, you know, they, they nominate you for this when you're out of the room uh, and have to twist your arm <laughs> to do it? Or uh, is this, you uh, know, what? It, it's a funny, you know, uh, let me, let me, first of all, I like to call it the chair, you know, it's a, it's a little bit more uh, diverse oriented to, to say that. Um, and uh, in this case, you know, it's a funny story. I, I was, I was not supposed to be the chair that for this two-year term. Uh, rather, Paul Hastings, uh, who's the CEO of Occamet, was going to be the chair. And Paul um, has had a bit of a rough run over at Occamet uh, over the last several months. And he called me up in, in uh, late April, early May, uh, and said, John, you know, do you mind doing it this time for the next two years, and then I'll do it for the following two years? And I said, all right, Paul, let me think about it. I talked to my wife. I talked to uh, my board and and uh, a couple of my colleagues here, and I decided, okay, I'm going to do it. I'll be the chair, and uh, I'll take on this two-year term. But it is it is something which um, you know I've been passionate and and, and very involved with bio uh, for the last you know over a decade. Um, it's actually amazing what we can get done down uh, down down in D.C. I mean, I know it's it feels like it's impossible. It feels like it is a swamp uh, or a sewer, whatever you want to call it. But but it is remarkable what Bio has been able to do. I mean, look at the recent authorization of Fedara, which is the new version of Padufa, uh, Padufa Six. Um, you know, Bio and, and played a major major role in negotiating that 21st century cures that got that got approved and signed last year uh, with under the Obama administration. Amazing piece of legislation. You know, Bio played a very active role in that. And so what we can do, uh, you know, through Bio. To basically ensure that we have a positive policy environment for innovation is something which is critically important, and is something which um, you know I've really enjoyed doing for the last decade, and look forward to helping you know Jim Greenwood and his team uh, do that for the next two years. What What are the actual duties of this job? Well, we have you know we have a board, and the board the board is comprised of around fifty uh, members. And it is to um, basically help set the schedules for the board meetings, to help, um, you know, obviously lead the board meetings so that there's a, you know, focused and appropriate discussion, keep people on schedule. Um, it is occasionally to go, um, you know, meet with um, politicians, um, you know, in, in D.C., either on the Hill or, in, or as part of the administration to basically advocate for uh, the importance of what our industry does. And so it is. It is. It is a. It is certainly a commitment of of, of time. There are four board meetings a year. There are many uh, calls that occur in between. Some occasionally because there's some you know crisis issue that might be emerging. Um, but but it's overall to provide leadership for uh, the the organization and to help the board provide the staff uh, at Bio with the right input on a, on a whole range of policy issues uh, that they uh, that they deal with on a day to day basis. These are issues that affect uh, lots of companies, big and small, across the industry. Uh, it's, it's bigger than the scope of, of what you're used to at El Nylum. Although, as we just discussed, I mean, El Nylum is, is playing in, in a lot of these major issues that affect everybody. Yeah. Well, which is why I, which is why I always tell people I see it as part of my day job. I, I, I think that, um, you know, there may be some CEOs that don't get as actively involved in, in, in this, and, and that is that is up to them to, to decide how to, how to best use their time. But, but I do believe strongly that, you know, for companies like Al Nylum to be able to do what we have to do and for us to deliver the value that we want to deliver to, to patients, 
um, you know, we need to have a policy environment that allows us to do that, and we have to be vocal. Uh, it's hard to be hard to be a turtle, um, you know, in this environment and just stick your head in your shell. Uh, you've got to you've got to get out there and advocate and make sure that uh, that uh, things that get discussed on on you know reimbursement and and you know Medicare Medicaid and you know uh, you know FDA reform and so forth that it's done in a in a way that's that's cognizant of how innovation can be harmed or helped by those different actions. Well, I saw you got a Twitter account recently, so I suppose that's part of it. You have to get out there and engage. You have to you know, advance advance your point of view and then engage with people out there, reporters, you know, analysts and such who you know don't always agree with you. <laughs> uh, so yeah. you know, bring your flag jacket. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but but you know, listen. I mean, I think it's great to have this debate, Luke. I mean, I, I think that's I think it's wonderful. You know, people that are skeptical around the industry, you know, are right to to have the skepticism. I think it's fair. Uh, people that are that are excited about the industry and you know, champions of the industry are are right to be the champions. And I think it's good to have this discussion. I think we all we all are better from as a result of that. I think when when you know people um, you know say that we're getting away with murder or that our drug prices are astronomical. Um, you know, I mean, I think we can, you know, probably, uh, avoid some of the blowhard aspect of all that, but the long, long and short of it is, you know, there, there is, as, there is a, an important debate here that needs to be had. And, and I think it's, uh, it's great that bio is part of it. I'm, I'm happy to be part of it as well. Well, I think the one thing that, uh, people sometimes forget is just how much, um, exciting science there is in the pipeline and what, um, that really could translate into over the next 10 or 20 years. The pace of science, the variety of things uh, bubbling up, uh, and just go on down the list, CRISPR, the microbiome, uh, neuroscience, DNA sequencing, enabled uh, approaches to drug discovery. It's, uh, it's an amazing bounty, I mean, we're looking it, at. And, and we're, it, it is and, amazing. And um, it, it really, um, it's on us to uh to think about policies to um to prepare for that yeah i mean shame on us if we can't figure it out right because we 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 are dealing we are dealing with a pace of of biomedical discovery that's never been faster and with with cures and treatments that are just unbelievable right when you look at the industry pipeline and medicines that are that are emerging and 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 the difference they can make in people's lives it, it is it is um it just it's stunning and and I think that we all need to get it right. We're all very committed to getting it right um and i and I think that you know the American spirit is one i mean if if we said in America that you know we should just you know just take today's medicines, we don't need to get make them any better, we can just die of cancer within months and stuff like that i mean if that became the american spirit then then you know the innovation we're delivering out of the industry is 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 overpacing the the needs of of society. But that will never be the case. I mean, we, we have a country and a society that will always want the best and always want, um, you know, cures and always want uh, the best possible treatments. And they don't want to die. Nobody wants to die from cancer. And, and it is remarkable what this industry has created. You know, my, my mom died nine years ago from CLL. And, um, you know, the, 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 the drugs that exist today, just nine years later, would have cured her. She would not have died. She would have died no. of something else. And that's just nine years ago nothing in terms of time. And so it is this, this pace of discovery and what we're creating and what we can do uh, for patients and for society is just, uh, is just enormous. 
And as a result, we have to be thoughtful about how we have the right policy environments that, that basically, you know, make sure that the golden goose, uh, the, go, you know, the goose is not giving up those golden eggs. Well, and you know, the other thing too, when you mentioned the CLL example, is that this is a fragile thing. Um, that drug, I believe, is in Bruvica, um, now marketed by yeah. AbbVie and, and J&J, yeah. that transforms yeah. CLL. And that was, uh, if, if memory serves, that drug came from a basic discovery effort screening by what was Solera Genomics, I think. Yeah, and it was it exactly. was thrown away on the, on the scrap heap. I mean, nobody yeah. thought this was worth anything. And yeah. a little company, Pharmacyclics, comes along and believes in it and invested some money raised some money and and proved that this thing, uh, a BTK inhibitor, uh, actually could work in a very big way. And and they made billions of dollars off of it. And, uh, you know, the drug is now out there and, and helping a lot of people. It worked. Yep. But but yep. it very, very easily could have just be sitting on someone's shelf or, or have been just thrown in the trash. No doubt. And, and then five to ten years from now, I don't know the exact dates, It'll basically be a generic drug, and there'll be two or three generic manufacturers that make Imbruvica, and it will be dirt cheap forever, forever, right? So that's the wonderful social contract that we've got, and that's the system that we need to preserve so that that you know, incentive is there for innovation, and that ultimately uh, these medicines, once they reach their you know, time period, uh, they are part of the fabric of society forever thereafter. That's sort of like the innovation dividend. We're reaping that it now is. with statins and you know all yeah. the, a lot of cardiovascular drugs. Which is why the, the, the cost of, of prescription drugs has stayed between 10 and 14 percent for decades because the system is actually working. Those, those drugs become very cheap. You know 13, you know when, 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 when uh, Lipitor came off patent, 13, 15 billion dollars of, of branded sales became generic overnight right amazing thing it's all good well i wish you luck with your treatment of ttr amyloidosis and hemophilia and and many other things coming uh at alnylam and in uh, adjusting this system to keep it to keep it in balance to, to keep it so that each side of the social contract feels like they're, they're getting a fair deal well thank you um, luke thanks for, very much for being with me on this first episode of the long run john have a great rest of your day Awesome. You too, Luke. Be well. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. This episode represents a team effort. Thanks very much to Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media for his work as editor and producer. Music for the show comes from D.A. Wallach. Todd Bennings created the logo, and Steve White developed the landing page on TimmermanReport.com. Next episode, how do you manage a company with the hottest gene editing technology on the planet, which can seemingly do anything, while keeping your eye on the prize of using it to create a drug? Hear what Katrine Bosley of Editas Medicine has to say about that, next on The Long Run.